Production support comes from Smithville, a locally owned business serving central and southern Indiana since 1922 with residential and business internet, phone, and security services. Smithville, local pride, global technology. Information at smithville.net. Welcome to Noon Edition. I'm Bob Zaltzberg, editor of the Herald Times, along with co-host Mary Catherine Carmichael. And today our topic is the upcoming fiscal cliff, which, of course, is a combination of tax increases and federal spending cuts that will go into effect on January 1st if Congress doesn't take some sort of action on another deficit reduction plan. We're going to talk today with three guests about how the cliff could affect Indiana. Our guests are Barbara Quant, who's the Indiana State Director of the National Federation of Independent Business, Leslie Linkowski, Professor of Public Affairs and Philanthropic Studies with the IU School of Public and Environmental Affairs, and Elmer Blankenship, who's the President of the Indiana Alliance for Retired Americans. If you have questions or comments, please phone us at 855-0811 in Bloomington, or if you're out of the local area, you can call toll-free at 877-285-9348. You can also join a live chat at wfiu.org slash noon edition. And if you want to follow us on Twitter, we're there at noon edition. So. <laughs> you can run, but you cannot hide. That's right. So thank you, everybody, for being here. The fiscal cliff has been a uh, big issue now. I don't know. The last couple of months people have been talking about it, particularly since the election, I guess. And I want to turn to uh, Les Linkowski first for sort of an overview of you know what you see ahead if, this, if we actually hit the fiscal cliff. Thank you, Bob. Uh, the fiscal cliff is a great example of a metaphor driving a public policy debate. Some phrases came up in testimony by Federal Reserve Chairman Ben Bernanke. And basically what's going to happen is at the end of this year, uh, the tax cuts that President Bush uh, proposed in 2001 uh, and were, were extended in the Obama administration are going to come to an end. Uh, at the same time, the um, – uh, budget cuts approved as a condition of raising the debt ceiling in 2011 uh, are going to take hold since Congress hasn't agreed on alternative budget cuts. And so that's what people refer to as the cliff. I think a better metaphor, though, would probably be something like the fiscal pothole. Uh, we are not like Thelma and Louise driving up to a cliff and are going <laughs> to fall off. Instead, there's a big bump in the road. Uh, and you bet if we go too fast in it, we can break the axle. But if we're careful, we can navigate through it or around it. It's also true that um, what's going to happen after this year, uh, after 2013, in other words, is that federal spending will start to increase again. So it's really not a cliff from which we're, where we're down at the abyss. We're going to go through a dip. Mm -hmm. Now, the big problem is what that will do to the real economy, to the decisions that people make about investment, about hiring, and so on. And uh, what we're doing is taking about 5 percent <laughs> of GNP out of the economy, and most people feel that given the state of the economy, that's not healthy. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. All right. Well, Barbara, from a business standpoint, um, you know, what are your concerns going forward? Well, it NFIB, as you know, represents uh, approximately 15,000 members, uh, small business owner members in Indiana and about 350,000 members uh, across the country. So we're the largest organization representing small business. And we've been tracking uh, small business trends, economic trends, uh, since uh, the 1940s. And our concern and our members' concern is either way, you know, the, the tax increases either way, what's it going to look like? And some of the proposals, quite frankly, uh, will uh, negatively impact small businesses. And since small business is, is the engine of this country, the, we create so the vast majority of the net, net new jobs. And uh, and so if something's going to affect them in a negative way, such as this proposal for anything over 250000 somehow it's been lost that that affects small business owners and because most small business owners, about 75 percent of them, pay their taxes as individuals. 
Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. and so, therefore, they're either a sole proprietorship or a sub-S corporation or a um, LLC or a partnership. They all – that income passes right through to their personal taxes. But that's not – cash in hand that's money that they use, that they have to invest in their businesses to grow jobs to buy equipment it's their working capital so somehow we need to come up with a solution that that doesn't throw small business out with the bathwater mm-hmm. mm-hmm. yeah I, I want to follow up on that because I, I I guess I sort of I guess I've read that before but why do small businesses run their incomes through as a, a personal I, income instead of setting something else up like a corporation? Well, if they had a standard corporation, they would actually be paying twice because they are the owners of the business as as well as involved in the management of the business So, and they're employees of the business. So they would actually be paying twice as a corporation and as an individual. Mm-hmm. Okay. And Elmer, the, you're the president of the Indiana Alliance for Retired Americans. So what are your major concerns? Well, our major concerns are the, the safety net, Medicare and Medicaid and Social Security. And um, uh, our feeling is, uh, <clears throat> well, on the tax, the tax on the people making over $250,000 a year, um, most, there's a lot of money in corporations that they are holding that they could invest right now. They're not investing. Um, tax that they got through stimulus and and other things provided by the government, especially banks that are not spending the money. They use it to buy other banks instead of helping people save their homes. The um, <clears throat> If they let the tax come back on for people under $250,000 a year, uh, that's going to stifle the spending, and it's going to hurt uh, the economy. There's no doubt about that. If people aren't buying, nobody's manufacturing, they aren't selling. So uh, the tax needs to be taken off or or stopped from increasing on those under $250,000. But uh, it's not going to hurt people making a million dollars and more to pay a little bit more. Mm -hmm. Uh, Many people depend... almost totally on Social Security for their income. And uh, Indiana has a lot of people that are benefiting under the Medicaid and the Medicare, um, and especially the new health care bill. I have figures on that, and uh, we'll probably have questions about what Indiana is saving. Hoosiers are saving millions of dollars on their prescriptions because of the new health care bill. I, I want to say, because I, I think sometimes people get a little bit confused. I certainly do. But if I understand things correctly, so if, if nothing is done, then the, the uh, tax cuts will go away for everybody, which means everybody will see an increase in their taxes. What the president has proposed is that there would be no tax increase for people who are – or the tax cuts would not go away for people who are making under 250000 but the tax cuts would um, would go away for those people making over two hundred. The increase from thirty five percent to thirty nine point six percent would go back in. Uh huh. Okay. All right. Yeah. Sometimes this is kind of complicated. So. Well, I just want to on that point though. Remember, we're not talking about individuals. We're talking also about married couples. So if there was a uh, two faculty members at IU who were married to one another and they each had a hundred and twenty-five thousand dollar salary, which is you know associate full professor salary here. Uh, they would see their tax rates go up because uh-huh. we're talking about households here. But I wanted to come back to the safety net a minute because I think that's a big part of the issue here. Uh, on the spending cuts. Uh, entitlement programs are exempt. When we talk about safety net, we're mostly talking about entitlement programs. They are completely exempt. So essentially what we're saying is that of the – I think it's about $110 billion in spending cuts that are going to happen after January 1st. They're going to come either out of the Defense Department, about half or what we call non-discretionary spending, which are basically programs like Head Start and uh, child care centers and so on. 
uh, the basic safety net program, Social Security, Medicare, and so on, are not touched at all, although some feel that's really at the heart of the de- – those programs are really at the heart of the deficit problem. Mm-hmm. Yeah, the, they're exempt under the sequester, but they're not exempt if Congress – as some right now are trying to do, is make changes in those. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, the benefits are exempt, but the providers and the doctors are not exempt from cuts under the sequester. Mm-hmm. And that's already been happening. Yes. Those changes of our, our, our many changes have already been implemented are, and are in the pipeline for implementation. But what's, what's at question right now, if I understand it correctly, are um, deeper, more intensive cuts. If, uh, Congress can make Congress can make cuts and changes now and avoid the sequester. And in in making those cuts, then Medicare and Medicaid are not exempt if they make a deal. That's unlikely because the commission couldn't make a deal. Mm-hmm. The Bull Simpson Commission themselves couldn't come to an agreement on what to do. So we're going to bring another voice into the conversation now. Katie Morrow is joining us. Katie from, is from AARP, and uh, we're glad to have you with us, Katie. Hi. How are you guys? Thank you so much for having me. Hey, we're doing well. So we're talking about the, the effects of the fiscal cliff on Hoosiers, and uh, you know what are what what is the AARP most concerned about? Well, when I heard um, one of the guests talk talk about Social Security and Medicare um, being exempt from the cuts. That's true, but there's a lot at stake for those programs um, in the current negotiations. Um, One thing uh, that's been mentioned about altering Social Security is changing the cost of living adjustment to a chain consumer price index. Um, AARP is really concerned about that. Um, The COLA, as most seniors can already tell you, is not sufficient. And changing that to the chain consumer price index basically um, assumes that that older folks will um, uh, try to trade down their spending for lower cost options, um, but I'm not quite sure how that works when, um, you know, folks are already on fixed income by and large, and so you're asking them to trade down on prescription drugs and utilities. Um, the average um, percent of a Social Security beneficiary income in Indiana is 67 percent. Social Security makes up 67 percent of their income. Okay. So, uh, yeah, so the, the uh, obviously the AARP is, is lobbying against these, uh, mm-hmm. these cuts in entitlement programs, correct? Yes, yeah. that, against that. And then with Medicare, um, there's been a serious discussion about raising the eligibility age to 67. Uh-huh. Um, there are uh, roughly 830,000 Hoosiers who are Medicare beneficiaries currently in Indiana. Um, changing the eligibility age to 67 would leave more than 100,000 people uh, without that coverage. You know, they're 65 and 66 right now. And the out-of-pocket um, health care expenses in 2011 were $5,000 already. So then you're going to push these folks into the private insurance market um, and incur even more health care expenses. Mm-hmm. So what is, if I can uh, switch subjects for just ever so slightly, what's, uh, what's AARP's view on whether Indiana should expand Medicaid? Do you have that? Is that a, an issue for you? It is. Um, We have been really active in uh, the implementation of the Affordable Care Act. Um, As most folks know, AARP supported um, the Affordable Care Act, and uh, we've been a leader in the state um, in convening folks on this issue um, because the governor's office uh, largely hasn't hasn't taken all that much action on it. And um, the Medicaid expansion, because of the federal match, I think it's 100, 190, 90, if that's right, or it might be 100 percent, 90, 90 um, in, the, in the ongoing years. Um, uh, we think it's a pretty good deal in terms of the amount of coverage uh, that can be expanded for folks. Mm-hmm. Okay. Um, so with the, uh, the, the debates that are going on, I mean, how active have you been in trying to Talk with Indiana legislators about, uh, you know, what you want to see with this discussion on the fiscal cliff. Uh, we at our state office have 
have not been as active as the as our national colleagues in Washington. Um, they have been very active. We had a lobby day um, with some target states um, a couple weeks ago because none of our members of Congress serve on you know a direct report committee right now. Um, we haven't been um, incredibly active on it, but uh, we just got word from from uh, our national counterparts that. Um, should these changes to Social Security and Medicare be included in the fiscal cliff package that will be voted on, um, more than likely ARP will key vote um, that vote. And so we will uh, be sure to inform our 837, or excuse me, 850,000 members in Indiana how their member of Congress voted on that. Mm-hmm. All right. Let me give our phone numbers again uh, so in case somebody wants to call in and talk to us about the fiscal cliff issue and how it's going to affect Hoosiers. Eight five five zero eight one one in Bloomington eight seven seven two eight five nine three four eight in the uh, uh, if you're not in the Bloomington calling area and you can join the live chat at wfiu.org slash noon edition. You know, we've talked about this kind of uh, a little bit big picture, but I'm thinking uh, for anybody like myself who goes to the grocery store on a regular basis, and most of us um, certainly buy gasoline on a, on a regular basis, I've never seen grocery prices higher than they are right now. So that coupled with fuel prices, um, housing costs are going up. Many people are going to be uh, renters indefinitely now because they can't afford to get into the housing market. We've already heard several stories on NPR uh, talking about that issue. So at what, and then with the possibility then of uh, taxes going up uh, in addition to all the other increases that are going up around us, I'm wondering um, what each of you think that I mean, are we going to reach a tipping point at some point where we say, hey, you know, we cannot shoulder this anymore? Yes. Yeah, Barbara Quant from the the Indiana State Director of the National Federation of Independent Business will start that one. Well, certainly uh, the grocery store that you're talking about is going to eventually – is going to have to pass along the increases that it incurs as it costs more to bring food in, to store it, to hire people for that, to handle their health care costs. That's got to be passed along at some point. They may absorb some of it, but they they work on – Grocery stores in particular work on very small margins. Right. So you're going to see some businesses going away uh, as a result of that. And then you'll also see people uh, making choices, you know, whether they uh, buy one fresh food item or uh, spam on the shelf. Mm-hmm. Nothing against spam. I love it. <laughs> Katie, are you hearing from your members about this? And, and are they saying, hey, this has got to stop? Or, or what are you hearing from your members? We're hearing a lot of anxiety uh, from our member and, and very justifiable concerns. I mean, I think, you know, growing up, we think we, we regard Social Security as, um, you know, a supplement kind of as to folks' income, retirement income. But um, since coming into this role with AARP, I've quickly, I quickly discovered that for most folks, it is the majority of their retirement income. Um, and, you know, with the economic crash in 2007, people lost. Uh, lost considerable amounts of money with that. And then traditional pensions you're seeing going away, you know, offered by employers. And so we're not talking about like a choice between going to the movies and going out to eat. We're talking about folks who may have already fallen into the Medicare uh, donut hole and now have to pay $1,000 for a drug that they need out of pocket. I mean, this is this is very crucial to their livelihood. Mm-hmm. Yeah, the problem, though, which really gets to the heart of your question, Mary Catherine, is um, that people don't want to give up what they've got. That is at the root of the political stalemate we're seeing in Washington. Uh, All the groups involved have to compromise a little. Yes, it's certainly true that senior citizens benefit a great deal from Social Security, Uh, here in Indiana and nationally. But there also are senior citizens that are very well off. It is certainly true that keeping the – that the 65-year-old eligibility age for Medicare brings in people who would otherwise have to go to the private market. But there are a lot of 65-year-olds, 66-year-olds and 67-year-olds who are working, who are in the private market. We have programs. I'm just picking those two out because they've come up. But we have a lot of programs that were set up 
uh, in ways we can no longer afford. Mm -hmm. And even if we raise taxes across the board, we're not going to close this deficit. The problem is that government is spending more than it is taking in. And unless people are willing to give up certain aspects of spending, they are going to go into the supermarket and find they don't have enough to spend on necessities. I'm going to ask uh, – hey. oh, go, go ahead, Katie, if you want to respond. Do you mind if I, if I just kind of address that quickly? No, no go right ahead. Um, hey, thank you. For the past uh, almost a year now, ARP has been on an um, initiative called You've Earned a Say, and we've been all around the state talking to folks about Medicare and Social and the proposed changes that Congress is considering to these programs. Um, we uh, acknowledge that there are, um, uh, you know, shortcomings in the programs that have to be addressed, but trying to cram these changes into this, uh, this timeline right now I don't think is fair, uh, particularly to the folks who rely on this uh, so heavily. Okay. Let me make... <clears throat> um, raising the... Uh, the Medicare uh, eligibility of 67 would include people 66 and 67, 65, who were, are harder to get insurance and pay a higher premium and already uh, delay things. Um, <clears throat> Social Security uh, is paid for not by tax money, by payroll deductions out of the person's uh, you pay into it, the employer pays mm -hmm. into it, and then there's excess money. They knew that the baby boomers were coming, and there's more money going in than is needed for the payout. Uh, right now, there's over $2.6 or $2.7 trillion in the fund, and it'll grow, they estimate, until 2020 or 2022 before it will, you know, you have to pull out of it. Uh, so that money is loaned to the government or the government, uh, they, they get certificates from the government just like Japan and China and other countries do. And we get taxes from that. And seniors, people drawing Social Security who have an income a little bit higher, pay taxes. Some of them pay taxes on 85% of their Social Security benefit. So there's, there's no common taxes, no sales taxes, no income taxes going into that. Social Security is self-supporting. The law requires that they cannot pay out. They cannot borrow money. Social Security Administration cannot borrow money to pay out. So if the fund gets low, it will automatic, the benefits automatically will be reduced. Mm -hmm. And... Um, so <clears throat> Social Security should be off the, off the table, certainly. Mm -hmm. And it would be easy to cover that by just raising the cap a little bit. Instead of $110,100, if they let that cap go up a little bit, it will solve the problem for years to come. Mm -hmm. Last year. Yeah, I think, you know, I don't know of any independent expert, including the Social Security uh, Administration's own actuaries, who are not worried about looming deficits in Social Security. And the only thing that could make you relaxed a little bit about that, perhaps, is that the deficits in Medicare are even worse. <laughs> but what? the deficit in Medicare by the new health care bill with the crisis is extended seven years to 2024. Uh -huh. well, let me say one thing about prescription drugs. The, if the Congress would let Medicare negotiate drug prices, they could save a lot of money. The, vet, the Veterans Administration negotiates drug prices. The Department of Defense devo, de, um, negotiate drug prices. We took people to Canada, and they get three months' supply for what they pay for one month here. Same drug, same code, same color, same drug. Uh, they could allow the um, Medicare to negotiate drug prices, which save uh, probably 60 or 70 percent of the cost. Katie, we're going to uh, let you go here. I want to give you an opportunity for one last comment, though, if you want to uh – offer anything from AARP's perspective? 
I would urge folks just to, to um, stay attuned to this, and uh, thank you so much for bringing it um, up today on the show. And, excuse me, you can reach us um, at AARP Indiana. Uh, the best way is, is via email, I-N-A-A-R-P at AARP.org. Um, as I said, we have more than 857,000 members in the state, um, and we do have a state office in Indianapolis. All right, Katie. Thanks a lot for joining us today. Good to talk to you again. You too. Thanks so much. All right. That was Katie Morrow from the AARP in Indianapolis. Uh, you're listening to Noon Edition. We're talking about the fiscal cliff and its impact um, on Indiana, potential impact on Indiana. We'll be right back. This is Noon Edition on WFIU. Production support comes from Smithville. Information at smithville.net. You can take WFIU with you by downloading podcasts directly to your PC, Mac, or MP3 player. Programs such as Noon Edition, Ask the Mayor, and Harmonia, and short features like Kinsey Confidential, the Ether Game Musical Mini Quiz, and Play and Opera Reviews are all available on demand. Pick them up at WFIU.org. And have you heard WFIU's news features? The WFIU news team brings you expanded and in-depth reports on topics affecting South Central Indiana. Catch the Friday feature just after 8.30 during Morning Edition, just before Noon Edition, and at 5.45 during All Things Considered. They're also archived on our website, WFIU.org. Welcome back to Noon Edition. I'm Bob Zaltzberg, editor of the Herald Times, along with co-host Mary Catherine Carmichael. And we're talking about the impact the the, uh, fiscal cliff could have on Hoosiers with uh, three fine guests who are here with us in the studio today. Barbara Quant is the Indiana State Director of the National Federation of Independent Business. Leslie Linkowski is Professor of Public uh, Affairs and Philanthropic Studies at the IU School of Public and Environmental Affairs. And Elmer Blankenship is in the studio with us. He's president of the Indiana Alliance for Retired Americans. If you want to join the conversation, uh, as Roger does, as soon as we get, I get through with these notes, uh, call us at 855-0811 or 877-285-9348. Join the live chat at WFIU.org slash Noon Edition. Roger has been waiting very patiently on the phone. Roger, go ahead. Thank you. Um, first of all, I, I think that um, the um, statements regarding uh, AARP's research on this matter have been helpful. I, I have found the most uh, detailed and best reassurance that uh, Social Security and Medicare can be made fiscally sound over the long term by some rather small adjustments in the AARP magazine. Don't throw away your AARP magazine and bulletin because that's the best place to find the, some good detail on this matter. What, what I wanted to ask, and I think, I think we did have something that was misleading earlier in the program where we were talking about the hypothetical of um, a couple of professors making 125000 apiece uh, I'm not in the place to understand exactly what marginal rates mean at 250000 But um, as I heard the uh, description of what would actually happen with an increase of about 4.5%, it sounds to me as though two people together making 250000 would make would have actually zero additional tax. Now, if they had... $250,100, they might pay $4.50 more in tax uh, under the plan uh, to go back to the pre-Bush tax rates for, for those. Would somebody uh, have the information on what the marginal rate actually means when you're at that $250,000 range? I think there's a lot of misinterpretation on that matter. Yeah, the mar- I mean, you're absolutely right. The marginal rate is the rate you pay on the next dollar you earn. As I understand the proposal, uh, once you exceed $250,000, you'll pay an additional four and a half percentage points in taxes indefinitely. 
So yeah. uh, it w- the, the, the for somebody just over two hundred and fifty thousand dollars, the tax bite will be very small. Yeah. However, uh, the point I'm making is that it's not just small business owners. We're talking about all those couples, including at IU, but lots of other places where uh, both adults are working and well, drawing professional. A dollars, but I don't see how it hurts. That you know, maybe uh, maybe twenty two hundred and fifty dollars if you make another fifty thousand. I, I don't think that's um, too much to expect. I mean, I'm I'm making a whole lot less than that. I'm making less than a hundred thousand, but I wouldn't mind if my taxes went back up to the pre-Bush rates. And so I don't know why we're crying over uh, over the hurt that this is going to be. Anyway. All right, Roger. It's like Les says, that people don't want to give up what they already have. Yeah. Well, it's also, I think, I, I think there's probably politically now uh, increased willingness on the part of the Republican Party to certainly uh, yield on the high tax breaks. But the critical question is, if you're going to give something, you want to get something in return. And where the issue is, is what kinds of spending cuts will occur in uh, exchange for giving the uh, higher ta- – endorsing higher tax rates. Mm-hmm. And that's where the stalemate is. Barbara. Well, it, the, the frightening thing about all of this is if we raise taxes or we go over the cliff or hit the pothole, uh, as Les described, we are going to end up – I mean, we are still not going to be closing the gap on on the deficits. In, in 2012, the federal government took in as much tax revenue, and that's $2.4 trillion, as it did in 2006. In 2006, the deficit was $250 billion. In two, 2012, the deficit was $1.1 trillion, or three hundred and forty. Forty percent higher with the same amount of revenue because of runaway spending. So if we don't do both, and mm-hmm. and we need folks to get reasonable all the way around. And I, and I think Les is absolutely right about it, that we can't just sit there and and uh, and say no, not not in my backyard. I think we all need to be working together to find a solution that'll work for for the long term for our kids right well we but you know we do have this set of expectations we expect that social security will be available to us because we paid into it and so that seems fair we have an expectation currently that uh, medicare or medicaid will be available to us on a time frame that we have grown to expect and have planned um, accordingly to anticipate that it seems to me that there needs to the national discussion needs to focus not on uh, a four and a half percent tax increase for people over two hundred and fifty thousand dollars, but on more of an actual sea change here, uh, you know, a changing set of expectations um, because of the situation that we are in. And I also think that um, that's going to be especially difficult because people don't feel like they got themselves into this mess. They feel like this very isolated group of individuals in Washington D.C brought us to this. And so that very isolated group of individuals in Washington, D.C. should be the ones to get us out of this and quick. So how do you deal with that? Who starts that discussion? I mean, I think politics have got to come into this. National leadership has got to come into this and start and have that discussion. Yeah, absolutely. And I know Les wants to talk about politics, too, but I want to go to our caller first and then we'll get into a political discussion, I think. So, Tommy, go ahead. Uh, I'd like to go back to uh, the difference between the discretionary budget and uh, the entitlements. Uh, there was a briefly mentioned about the the, uh, the difference between it and uh, and the entitlements are Social Security and, and Medicare and paid for out of your uh, what we would call FICA uh, mm-hmm. out of your uh, your paycheck and any changes has to be by uh, legislation and the discretionary is what is voted on every year, and uh, uh, that's what they uh, the legislators can just simply cut. Uh, they uh, they don't have to pass a law uh, uh, to change Social Security or Medicare. Now everything has been on Medicare and Social Security, and the as they say the big elephant in the room that's not been discussed is the Department of Defense. 
And now, this is treated, it seems to me, to me as uh, an entitlement uh, by the uh, politicians. It, uh, the Department of Defense is not audited. There's been great fraud, which uh, we all have, uh, have seen in the paper, uh, in terms of, uh, uh, of uh, uh, military fraud, both in Iraq and in Afghanistan. It doesn't, uh, the military spending doesn't make as many jobs as non-defense spending. Uh, we fought two wars without paying for them, and we seem to want to just continue to do that. Now, while we're talking about where what our expectations, I think we ought to turn to the, uh, uh, this expectations about the Department of Defense. I have before me the, uh, the Friends, uh, Committee on National Legislation, and as an example, um, if they bring home additional 4,300 troops from Afghanistan in, two, in 2013, which would leave 63,000 there, the net savings would be 4.3 billion, and that that works out to be about a million per soldier per year. Uh, and uh, the, another one is that if you would hold the Pentagon spending to the 2007 levels plus inflation, the net savings would be $100 billion per year over 10 years. And then they also say if you want to reduce the federal debt by $1.4 trillion over the next 10 years, you would end the temporary tax cuts for the wealthy 2% of households, and your net saving would be $830 billion. And you repeal the tax loopholes for U.S. corporations' offshore profits, net savings would be $583 billion. So there... We're t uh, when you the the uh, deficit is not at the present time in Social Security, the deficit is in the discretionary period, and a great deal of it is the military spending that has skyrocketed. All right. Any reaction to Tommy's comments, Les? Yeah, I think um, first of all, you have to remember these big numbers—hundreds of billions of dollars or ten-year numbers. When we're looking at deficits in the federal government. We're not looking only at next year. We look at a 10-year period, at which point, as we've heard earlier, the prognosis for programs like Medicare and Social Security, which are only part of the entitlement mix, food stamps is an entitlement, lots of others, uh, but 10 year, over the next 10 years, some of these entitlement programs look very different financially than they might look today. The other thing, um, in the sequester, 50 percent of the cuts are coming out of the Defense Department, 50 percent. Uh, remember, none out of entitlements in the sequester. Uh, as we go forward over the next 10 years, the level of defense spending that's being projected is much less over that 10-year period than it had been previously. So there are being cuts made in defense. There are a lot of people who question these cuts ultimately. One of the functions of the federal government is to provide for our common defense. That depends to some large degree on threats. But even so, I think it's not fair to say that the Defense Department has been left out of uh, these cutbacks. The, the Defense Department, uh, Congress is approving or wanting to approve more than the Defense Department asked for is one thing. And the lady who talked about the $583 billion uh, eliminating the tax for sending jobs overseas is one place we can save. They can impose three hundredths of a percent on the speculators in Wall Street would save $363 billion over nine years. Uh, there's already in play in the last two years things that will save $3.2 on the deficit uh, when they set – two years ago is when they set the $4 trillion as the, as the goal. So they already have things in place to reduce it by $3.2 over 10 years. And uh, some of the other tax loopholes that are uh, available certainly would help that. They, they can do it. And they should do it. Mm -hmm. I, I got to tell you, I think a lot, uh, a lot of the problem that 
that has led to us being in this mess in some ways is that these numbers are so big they don't mean anything to anybody. Mm -hmm. And, you know, we're talking about trillions of dollars, hundreds of billions of dollars, and everybody's eyes glaze over and say, well, okay. Mm -hmm. You know, if it's a trillion today, what's the big deal if it's two trillion next week? (laughs) So, Wes? Yeah, I think that's right. Although I think, you know, it's always particularly as we read our newspapers in the morning – important to keep our eye on the positive side as well as the very negative issues we've been talking about. Positive side, we just had a presidential election campaign in which the famous third rail of politics, Social Security and Medicare, were actually addressed. Both President Obama and uh, candidate Romney, especially his vice presidential candidate, Paul Ryan, did address the Medicare issue uh, without significant political repercussions. Uh, we are also seeing over in the... Well, they lost. Well, they well, President Obama won. <laughs> no, he won, but, yeah. but Paul but Ryan didn't Ryan. do so well. Ryan lost. <laughs> well, it's not at all clear that it had anything to do with the debate on Medicare. The, um, over on the congressional side right now, uh, Speaker Boehner, I think, has a little more running room within his own caucus in part because there are a lot of different views within the Republican Party about what led to uh, the mm-hmm. defeat of what most thought was a winnable presidential election. Mm-hmm. So the notion that some people had that the Tea Party is calling all the shots is no longer true. The Tea Party endorsed 16 candidates for the United States Senate. Only four of them won. Uh, on the Democratic side, I think President Obama faces more serious problems because a variety of interest groups are hanging in there with regard to various levels of spending. Uh, the other day, the White House floated an idea about raising the Medicare eligibility age. It was immediately shot down by Congresswoman Nancy Pelosi. So the president's got some real problems as well. But I think overall, we see a little more fl- potential for flexibility on the part of leadership than we've seen in a long time. But I agree it would be very good if both sides addressed the public more forthrightly about this. Let me offer our phone numbers again. We have about 10 more minutes to go in the program, 855-0811 in Bloomington, 877-285-9348 outside of the local area. And you can join the live chat at wfiu.org slash noon edition. I wanted to mention a couple – we've had a couple of uh, – questions come in through our producers. One is um, to – well, one was about the $250,000 limit and does that mean – is that all income? Does that include interest income, all sorts of income? So It does. Yeah, I think it's, a, it's, it's gross income as I understand it. Well, okay. uh, on your tax, you get – you get deductions for dividends. You, you pay a less fifteen percent. You pay on dividends. You, you pay a lot less on some things. So uh, those those things, uh, you know, and, and that's why the the one I mentioned three hundredths of one percent on these investment. Uh, oh, what do they call it? Uh, where they buy companies and and. Uh, Take out loans and then sell the bankrupt the companies like the Bain Bain. Uh, uh-huh. Just tax a little bit on their investments. Uh-huh. Okay. Um, also, Les, we wanted a little clarification on what you meant when you said that entitlement programs would have to look different. I think you you may remember saying that you said. Entitlement programs will be looking different 10 years down the road. Yeah, I think there's actually a lot of agreement. The question is who's, how we're going to get there. Um, as I said earlier, there's no doubt at all among any independent people who have looked at it that Social Security, as it is currently operating, needs to be inju- adjusted or is it going to run into those deficits that we heard about earlier, which will lead to automatic cutbacks and benefits. There are lots of discussion about Medicare and other programs as well. And these are all going to be happening over the next 10 years, uh, partly as the baby boom generation retires, partly as the size of the active workforce becomes relatively smaller. Mm -hmm. Remember, the people who are paying in to Social Security today are the people who are supporting the people who are retired today. It is not a simple 
put your money in. There's a bank account in Baltimore. You get it back. It is a transfer program from today's earners to today's retirees. And as the size of our labor force diminishes in relation to the size of the retirement popula- retired population, puts a lot of strain on. Mm-hmm. So I think we're going to see changes in those. The question is how we're going to get there. Uh, remember, a lot of what's being talked about today and all the proposals, and I agree, we should not force these changes in the next two weeks. But we need to start addressing them, and a lot of these changes are going to exempt people who are within a few years of retirement already. So ideally, you'd like to be able to put these in place so people could plan accordingly. Mm -hmm. We've got this self-imposed, almost artificial deadline, and yet we have it. It's very real. So, Barbara, from a small business perspective, how would you like to see things transpire over the next couple of weeks? Well, certainly I think that the the issue of small business owners and I, I think when you when we keep talking about this two hundred fifty thousand uh, dollar limit and and taxing the rich. And when you say taxing the rich, people envision Donald Trump. And uh, as as Les pointed out that that there is a, there's a lot of difference there, and mm-hmm. and with uh, small business owners, there it, it, it's a family income, mm-hmm. and 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 they're working capital. So somehow we need to be able to to look at that and say, well, you know, this isn't what we intended. We don't want to tax small businesses more than we tax big businesses, which is what you're going to be doing if you do it. So. We'd, we'd certainly like to have an, a real clear, honest discussion about this instead of saying the rich. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah, that's always, against Donald It's Trump. easy to paint, paint the rich as others. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Homer, how would you like to see things transpire over the next couple of weeks? Well, <clears throat> I'd like to see things uh, worked out with uh, real honest discussions on everything. And um, the Affordable Care Act is one that has things coming into play, changing health care to where you you avoid illness, you you screen people. You know, right now, last year and this year, free screenings for diabetes, cancer, mammograms, colonoscopies, preventive services, no co-pays, no deductibles, under Medicare and under private insurance, bringing your kids in up through age 26. these things that change the dynamics in medicine don't do triplicate, double and triplicate examinations and x-rays and uh, all kinds of expensive tests when they aren't needed. Get people well. Do the things to make them well. This is going to change medicine, uh, the cost of Medicare, and uh, help things. And um, see the taxing oil companies who get subsidies and have extremely high profits, same way with uh, big drug companies. Uh, Don't let them get by with buying the next, the generic, and keeping it off the market. Make it quicker to get medicines on the market, generics. Uh And Hoosiers have saved over $90 million on drugs. Hoosiers under the Medicare, the new health care bill, Obamacare. I say they try to uh, denigrate it by calling it Obamacare. I say we need to call it Obamacare and brag on it because it's our issue. Mm-hmm. Small business, a lot of them get will get uh, tax credits for having health care for their employees. It helps retain employees. Mm-hmm. Barbara? Obamacare? Uh, Obamacare, we have. Good for small business? (laughs) Not yet. (laughs) It certainly doesn't look like it. it, At this point, it's going to be. And uh, costs keep going up. We were supposed to have a reduction. Uh, One of the uh, biggest areas where where folks are not covered by uh, health insurance is small businesses and their employees. So we need to make something that's affordable for them. And at this point, it, it's not. Costs are going up. 
every day. Mm-hmm. And we, we also need to be a little cautious here. When Medicare was enacted in 1965, one of its leading sponsors, I think he was then the Secretary of Health and Human Services or Health Education and Welfare, was Abraham Ribicoff, distinguished man who became a senator from Connecticut. And he said later in his life that he had no idea that the growth of Medicare would go as it did. If he had, he might not have been as supportive of the program. Mm -hmm. Now, we don't know what's going to happen with the Affordable Care Act. Part of the problem is it's such a big and comprehensive program. Uh, No one really can quite figure it out. We will find out, though, and um, we need to be cautious as we look at it or else we're going to find we've created another set of fiscal problems. Mm-hmm. And, and part of the problem with that, too, is the fact that they're just at the federal level. They're just now figuring it out. They're <laughs> just, they, there are so many of the rules that haven't even been written yet. Oh. So uh, so much uncertainty, and, uh, that, and that's one of the things that's stymieing uh, business growth, too. Les, we don't have much time left, but I wanted to give you a crack at how you'd like to see things transpire over the next couple of weeks for a positive outcome. I'm a a big advocate of radical incrementalism. Let's take some (laughs) small steps. Congress uh, doesn't make big deals very easily. There are too many moving parts. Uh, I don't think that uh, some aspects of the so-called cliff will be all that harmful. They will emerge slowly. Uh, we ought to make the deals we can – Congress and the president make the deals they can and keep addressing them. I think Congress will be doing much better piecemeal than trying to get it all solved in one big bill. One of the things I uh, pulled up this morning uh, before the show is a CNN story that talks about some of the uh, attitudes. A Bloomberg national poll found nearly two-thirds of respondents, including nearly 50 percent of Republicans, believe Obama's reelection gave him a mandate to seek higher taxes on the wealthy. Also, um, CNN reported uh, on an ABC News Washington Post poll that was released Wednesday that says nearly half of Americans, 49 percent, approve of the president's handling of the discussions compared to 25 percent who say Boehner is doing a good job. So clearly the Democrats have the political edge in this right now. And I guess I took the last bit of time, so we're out of time. (laughs) Sorry about that. All right. I want to thank our guests, Barbara Quant, Leslie Lenkowski, and Elmer Blankenship. Also, uh, Katie Morrow for joining us from AARP. For uh, our for Mary Catherine, Mary Catherine Carmichael, for and for producers Gretchen Frazee and Julie Raw, as well as Dan Goldblatt, who returned to the studio today, and engineer Mike Pashkash. I'm Bob Salzberg. Thanks for listening. Noon Edition is a production of WFIU and the Herald Times. A podcast of this and other WFIU programs is available at WFIU.org. Production support comes from Smithville, a locally owned business serving central and southern Indiana since 1922 with residential and business internet, voice, and security services. Smithville, local pride, global technology. Information at smithville.net.